0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine – It was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 179, Where Were We? We started the last century, back in 912 AD, with an episode entitled A Roman Story. That episode covered the events which saw Leo VI pass away, leaving an infant, Constantine VII, to be fought over by various competing interests. The patriarch, the empress, court eunuchs, the army. Finally, the matter was decided by the admiral of the fleet, Romanus Le Lecabinos. He became emperor and guardian to young Constantine, and only the popularity and the legitimacy of the Macedonian dynasty saved young Constantine from being erased from the picture altogether. And the reason I called it a Roman story was to emphasise the fact that a traditional monarchy did not really exist in Byzantium. Blood counted for a lot, but at the end of the day the imperial office was just that, an office whose holder could emerge through a number of mechanisms. The support of the court was vital, but so was the church, the army, the people, all had a say in who ruled. And this hangover from the fate of Julius Caesar, this unwillingness to have a king whose descendants would rule forever, left Byzantium always with a crowded and complicated political scene. This continued throughout our past century of narrative. Romanus's sons would have killed Constantine if they weren't afraid of being torn to pieces by the mob. Their own sister helped kick them out the door so that her husband could rule alone. Constantine worked hard to ensure that his son wouldn't have to go through the ordeal that he'd suffered, but cruel fate killed off his son unexpectedly, leaving his grandsons, Basil II and Constantine VIII, to relive his childhood all over again. First came the squabbling at court, then the takeover, first by Nicephorus Phocas, and then John Zimisces. This was the norm for Byzantine political life. Zimisces butchered his own uncle, a war hero and pious emperor who had done so much to secure the empire's borders. And what did the people do? They shrugged. And what did the court do? They fell in line. Byzantine political life was not about blood feuds or revenge. Everyone knew the rules of the game. If you could get to the top of the mountain, there was gold waiting for you. And everyone you knew and everyone related to you would back you. Regardless of how much blood was on your hands, uh, within reason, of course. All of this to say that the office of Roman Emperor was unique. No other contemporary state knew competition like this. Think of all the never ending civil wars that we've had to cover, including, of course, the epic of the two bardises, Phocas and Scleros, who both tried to topple Basil II. They failed. And what followed was 44 years of sole rule. 44 years. That's a very long time, particularly in medieval terms. Basil's reign was an anomaly, a real outlier. It was very rare for an emperor to rule for even 20 years, even rarer to make it to 30. 44 was unheard of. A father and his son could have lived and died in that time while Basil was still just enjoying his sole rule. But it wasn't just the length of Basil's reign that was unusual. It was the absence of the other elements of the political sphere. Basil didn't marry. He had no wife or child or people that his children would marry to interfere with his court. He kept his brother at arm's length, he spent a lot of time away from Constantinople, he bypassed the crowds and the court and their usual influence for much of his time, he appointed pliable patriarchs, and he devoted himself to his army, making sure that the magnates were distracted and rewarded, and any sign of disloyalty was snuffed out. Having once been a pawn, Basil had decided to keep the board clear of other pieces. This was a most unusual state of affairs, and Byzantium both benefited and then suffered from it. After 44 years of competent and careful management, the empire was as healthy as it had ever been. But what about the succession? Basil's decision to not only stay single, but to seemingly prevent his nieces from marrying, condemned the Macedonian dynasty to obsolescence. The popularity of the ruling family had saved Basil. It had ensured that Foucault and Zimis-Kies could never lay a hand on him. But whether he fully thought it through or not, his decision to have no successor put the empire on a collision course with ugly civil wars all over again. It wasn't just being childless that caused a problem, it was Basil's style of leadership. By spending so much time with the army and extending the empire's borders on all sides, Basil became a tough act to follow. Ideally, the next emperor would also be a soldier who would keep the army happy while slowly demilitarizing certain fronts. Basil made no plan for this. He simply allowed his brother to take over from him. The brother who hadn't been near an army camp for years and whose daughter's were now both past childbearing age. Into this vacuum, the other elements of the political sphere will come running. Patriarchs, empresses, court eunuchs, the people of Constantinople, all will want their say on who the next Vasilevs should be. And while they squabble over who will begin the next dynasty, what do you think the army will do? Having been led in succession by Nicephorus, John, and Basil, three of the great generals of Byzantine history, how will they feel about being given orders by distant, inexperienced civilians? As we've touched on during these end-of-the-century episodes, Byzantium is about to be attacked by Pechenegs, Normans, and Turks. There was no way to anticipate all the problems that these enemies would cause – But the way that the Empire responds to them will certainly be hampered by the constant battles over the throne that will take place in the wake of Basil's death. As you know, Michael Pselos is our primary source for a lot of this period, and to give you an idea of the chaos to come, you should know that his Chronographia has been given the snappier title in its English paperback of 14 Byzantine Rulers. That is all you really need to know as our narrative resumes. The borders are safe, the economy is growing, but politics is on its way back after 40 years of living under Basil II's thumb. We know little about Constantine VIII's life before Basil's death, he was too young to have known his father, and at just seven, he was woken in the middle of the night to be told that Nicephorus Phocas had been murdered a few rooms away. It would be no surprise if he shared his brother's disdain for outsiders in the palace. In his twenties, we're told that he went on campaign with Basil on a couple of occasions, but that's the only hint we get of his public life. Unlike his brother... Constantine got married and had three daughters, and he stayed in and around Constantinople for most of his life. We're told that he liked horse racing, hunting, gambling, and comedy shows. That is entirely plausible, but many short-lived emperors are tagged with these hobbies, suggestive of their lack of moral fibre, and it makes a nice contrast with Basil's austere professional focus. Naturally, Constantine's household staff was made up of eunuchs. Pselos says that these men were mostly castrated as children on Constantine's orders and grew up to become his trusted friends. Now, our historian may just be describing a normal piece of business, that eunuch boys would be raised and educated alongside their sovereign to form bonds of loyalty. But if literally true... I thought it was quite a poignant description. Naturally, it was hard for an emperor to make real friends because of their distance from ordinary people. And so the lonely Constantine found camaraderie with the servants who surrounded him and came of age in the same luxurious confinement that he did. It remains a mystery as to why Constantine's daughters did not marry and have children of their own. The most likely explanation remains that Basil II did not want any other family gaining a position of power at court. And Psellos implies that Constantine agreed with this, and the fact that none of his daughters married until he was on his deathbed seems to point that way. It was a decision with plenty of risk and negative consequences attached, but in the end, none of them, not Basil nor Constantine, nor his daughters, Zoe and Theodora, would make any real attempt to groom someone from the next generation. Constantine was at one of the palaces outside of the capital when Basil felt the Grim Reaper's hand on his shoulder. The emperor called for his brother and handed the government over to him shortly before dying on the 15th of December, 1025. Constantine the Eighth was about 65 years old when he became sole ruler, and with no experience of government, he seems to have veered from generosity to brutality rather than finding a moderate path. He began his reign with a remittance of taxes and the release of political prisoners, but when a suspected conspiracy came to light a year later, he responded with a fairly vicious purge. The plot centred around the dukes of Vaspuracan, Nicephorus Komnenos, who was accused of conspiring with the Georgians. This had been the source of Barda's focus's support back in the day, and Constantine seems to have overreacted in a big way. And not only were Nicephorus and his associates arrested and blinded, but the same fate was meted out to the descendants of all the major conspirators of the emperor's lifetime. Amongst those who lost their sight were Constantine Vortzis, Bardas Focus, Basil Sclerus, and Romanus Corcuas. Essentially, the male grandchildren of all the famous generals who he'd known in his youth. Now, these didn't take place all at once, but it seems like even a rumour of disloyalty was enough for the Vasilevs to order someone's eyes to be removed. Antony Caldelis comments that in a brutal way Constantine was wrapping up his dynasty's unfinished business. Meanwhile, in Greece, the people of Naupactos rose up and killed their unpopular governor, and Constantine sent troops in to inflict harsh punishments on the town's leaders, including blinding the local bishop. Though Pselos was still a child during these events, he reports that Constantine was an emotional ruler, that upon seeing some of the men he'd blinded, he would openly weep and ask for their forgiveness. Whether that actually happened, we don't know, but those telling Pselos about the emperor clearly perceived him to be hot-headed and prone to regret. Uh, The Vassilovs was also suffering from gout by this stage in his life, and he had to travel everywhere by horse to avoid the discomfort. Constantine naturally ruled through the men he trusted, his eunuchs. He put beardless men in charge of several key military commands, including Antioch and Tau. The rest of the armed forces continued to keep the peace with little trouble. Arab pirates from Sicily were defeated in the Aegean in 1026, A raid by a tribe of Pechenegs was driven out of Bulgaria the next year, and in 1028 a series of forts were taken in Georgia after attempts by the locals to reclaim them. And that's really all there is to Constantine's reign. Just over two and a half years after succeeding his brother, the emperor became seriously ill. His eunuch ministers rushed to his bedside to discuss the succession. Again, no decision had been made about a potential replacement. And to be fair to these men, they had no incentive to encourage Constantine to groom someone. While he was alive, they were all enjoying unprecedented authority and wealth. A new man at the top would see plenty of them lose favour. Apparently, Constantine's first choice to succeed him was the respected general Constantine Thalassinos. The Thalassinoi family had been loyal supporters of the Macedonians and had served for many years as governors of Antioch, a sure sign of Basil's trust in them. But either because he was too far from the capital or because the eunuchs decided they preferred a more pliable candidate, Thalassinos was waved off. The man they settled on was the prefect of Constantinople, Romanus Argyros. It looks like Argyros when you read it in English. Romanus had much to recommend him. He actually had imperial blood, he was a competent administrator, and a gentleman. He was also 60 years old with no heir. He has the scent of a compromise candidate about him. If we've made a bad choice, we may not have to live with it for too long. After 160 years of dynastic rule, though, it was unthinkable that Ahiros could simply be put forward as a sensible successor on his own merit. No, he would need to marry one of Constantine's daughters in order to gain the legitimacy necessary to be accepted. The problem was that Romanus was already happily married, and his wife had no interest in letting him go. The story Pselos tells is that soldiers were sent to their home, implying that they would kill Romanus if his wife didn't agree to leave him. The only way they could respectably divorce is if she joined a convent, so she accepted this fate in order to save her husband and became a nun. Romanus was then led to the palace and told that he should marry the emperor's daughter Zoe immediately. He did, and two days later Constantine VIII passed away. He was the last of the male Macedonians and the last emperor to be buried in the mausoleum of the Holy Apostles. He was about 68 years old and had ruled the empire for less than three years. In Constantine's short reign, we can already see the other elements of the political arena creeping back to prominence in the absence of Basil. Palace eunuchs were taking over military commands, important generals were being upset, imperial princesses were becoming kingmakers. The elevation of Romanus did nothing to address the problem of the succession, all it did was replace one old man with another. And Romanus was no Phocas or Zimisces. he wasn't going to do great things on behalf of the Macedonians. He was a stopgap, and it still wasn't clear what the transition away from the ruling dynasty was going to look like. Next time, we introduce our new imperial couple. Romanus is your new emperor and CEO, but he only rules because of his association with Zoe, a true Macedonian princess but I'm sure they'll get along fine. After all, rushed marriage arrangements followed by shotgun weddings always end well. Since Constantine VIII has just passed, it's a good time to update our Constantine acrostic, where we're trying to come up with a simple rhyme scheme to remember each of the eleven Constantines, and of course starting each line with the next letter in the eleven-lettered name, Constantine. Big credit to Listener SM who came up with this structure, but also to all of you who responded on social media with suggestions for this update. Here's what we have so far, and we begin, of course, with Constantine I. Christianized the Roman state, oldest offspring of the great, nearly reigned 100 days, saved the city, so they say. Theophanes called him dung, assassinated. By his mum, noted writer purple born, the slayer's brother, earns our scorn seems a bit harsh on Constantine the Eighth in retrospect, but uh, all suggestions for improvements are welcome and If you're looking for a very late Christmas present or just something good to read over the holidays, then why not check out a new piece of historical fiction set in Byzantium? It's about a young man heading out to serve in Nicephorus Focus's armies. And the title of the book was inspired by one of our episodes. It's called A Triumphal Procession by Bashir Abu Eid. Check it out now on Amazon, and if you read e-books, you can actually pick it up for free right now. It's a special Christmas offer, so if you take him up on it, then why not review the book and help draw the attention of others to it?